hello and welcome to another episode of Radio Moorpork. I am Colm and I am as ever accompanied on this journey through Terry Pratchett's Disc World by the wonderful Rose Fortune. Rose, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, and you? I'm good. You're very good because you were at Discworld Con last weekend. Yep. Yeah. Ireland's National Discworld Convention, which I think started in the UK, but now we've got our own. Oh. Which is great because it means far less for me to travel. Yeah. It was brilliant. It was in Cork, uh, in the Cork International Airport Hotel, or the Cork Airport International Hotel. One of those two. Either way, it's in Cork and it's beside the airport. Um, oh, it was really great. It's a great community of people. I saw some really brilliant costumes. Yeah. Wizards everywhere. Witches everywhere. Met some lovely people. Uh, there was one guy who had made his own dragon. And when I say made his own dragon, he had created a costume that looked like he was riding a dragon. The, the bottom half of his body was a big dragon. No, was it a, was it a swamp dragon or a noble dragon? I'd say swamp. Okay, so did it explode? Sure. No, no, there was definitely no explosions at this convention. Oh, points deducted for authenticity here. If you want the proper <laughs> swamp dragon, you know, climax the convention by exploding. <laughs> Which I think would have really detracted from the event from the convention overall, though. Yeah, yeah, well, you know. I quite like my conventions to not explode. Well, I guess we'll have to agree to disagree <laughs> on that one. That's fair. Yeah, so um, me and my friend Steve, the guest star for the Morph podcast, if anybody remembers that one, uh, we learned how to defend against daggers. Turns out I'm better at stabbing than defending. I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> okay. But I learned one defense pretty well. Which means that if somebody attacks me in an incredibly specific way, I'm covered. But if they come at me from any other angle, I'm screwed. Okay. Well, don't say what that very specific way is in case one of our listeners <laughs> turns out to be someone who attacks you with a knife at some stage. That's true. We don't want them to know. You're right. Huh. People might have some very strong feelings about swamp dragons and exploding conventions. Might want to have a word yeah. with me. Yeah. Oh, what well, else? they might. Yeah. There's a couple of great talks. Um... The merchandise. Um, I've been to conventions with more merchandise. Like some conventions will have a big merchandise hall, but it won't all be quality. Yeah. Whereas this one had a couple of stalls and they were fantastic. They had a big stall from the Discworld Emporium, which is a Discworld themed store, just Discworld products, custom made, beautiful things. Where is that? That's in the UK, right? It is. I think it's in, oh, don't quote me here. I think it's in Wincanton. Wincanton. Yeah, Somerset, Wincanton. I think I remember seeing that somewhere. But I should fact check. They that. don't. They don't have a football team, and like I think you know, in the football, in in the ninety-two football league clubs, I don't think any of them are Wincanton. So they're a they're a bl- blind spot in my UK <laughs> geography. <laughs> oh my god! Which is determined entirely by football. Wow, I didn't know. I would have told them. <laughs> yeah. I would have tried to sort that, that out. I think Somerset is a cricket country. Um, ah. Yeah. Well, it's also Discworld country. Yeah, evidently. <laughs> so, so that definitely saves it. I got some great postcards there. I got a beautiful necklace there. I can show people that one later. It's my favourite piece of jewellery now. I'll never not wear it. It's pretty ASO, right? Thank you. Uh, what else? They had a Waterstone stall, which just had Terry Pratchett books. It was a book stall that yeah. only had books by Terry Pratchett it's like my dream they had all of the beautiful new hardback versions they had all of the old ones and all of the original art a couple of the companion pieces you know the Death's Domain and the Lanker 
oh, there was also a games room. Yeah. And they had a few of the Discworld games. They have a new Discworld game, by the way, called Clax. I didn't okay. get to play it, but I'm very excited to get the opportunity at some stage. Maybe that'll be my question. Like a board game or a computer game? Board game. Okay. Yeah, they have a few of them now. They have a Discworld board game. That's just the Discworld in general. Mm-hmm. They have The Witches, which is one that I played there, and it's quite good. Uh, they have Clax now, and they have Guards Guards. Oh. That's, is there, um, it's in... Accents Cafe on Stephen Street, I remember, has a, a copy of, like, Arts Cards, is it? Like yeah. Like, game, although it's been meaning to, yeah. We should go there. there and play that sometime. Yeah, absolutely should. I started it one time yeah. with a couple of friends, um, but we were interrupted because there was a talk there that evening. So we got about halfway through the game, everybody was doing quite well, we, we collected a couple of spells, and collecting spells is the aim of the game, and then this guy starts talking about philosophy in the corner, we had to pack up and go. Oh, I know him, I was on, I, I, I once, uh, I, I think I either attended or read at this same event he read, uh, espoused oh, yeah? on philosophy on. Um, he's, he's a decent guy. <laughs> I think he, <laughs> uh, with, with some with some talking, he might have been content to allow you to continue to play Discworld, albeit a bit quietly while he uh, while he continues philosophizing. He, he felt quite strongly okay. about us not playing the game anymore. However, I won't hold that against him because I probably wouldn't have appreciated it either kind of takes a lot to stand up in front of a crowd of people and start talking philosophy in a cafe yeah. it's not so great when people are playing and shouting with dragons at the back yeah again we weren't shouting but <laughs> i see where he's coming from if you weren't shouting you weren't playing it right that's true yeah see see this is why we need to play it together because yeah. obviously i was doing it wrong <laughs> but guards guards is probably my favorite of the Discworld games i played even just based on that half a game mm-hmm. and the Discworld game in general is fantastic and the witches one is quite good as well that's more rural based and you go around trying to fix sick sheep and sick pigs and fevers and pregnancy and you get points for how big or small the problems that you're dealing with are. So we played that for a couple of hours. We saw a screening of Weird Sisters, which we'll be talking about now. Uh, they also screened Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog. And twice they screened the episode of Once More With Feeling from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> the reason on the programme is just because tradition. This is the first time I was at it, so I don't know where that tradition comes from, but I really appreciate it. Well, you know, that, that ties into some of the stuff in Weird Sisters pretty well, so... <laughs> tradition I'll, or once more feeling? <laughs> uh, to, just uh, the because tradition uh, attitudes. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> oh, and what else? That's most of my favourite high points of the thing. Um, and, of course, there was a talk from Colin Smith, uh, Terry Pratchett's original agent, and a talk with Bernard Pearson, who runs the Discworld Emporium. Both of which were great talks, both of which focused on quite different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, Colin Smith, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, because it's spelled S-M-Y-T-H-E, and I'm not sure whether that's Smith or Smith. It might be Smythe, but I, I don't... I, I say Smythe, but no. <laughs> there was a and I could have said, hey, <laughs> How do what's you your name? <laughs> you get one question to ask him. <laughs> How do you pronounce your name? <laughs> there were some good questions to him, actually. He talked a little bit about when we had the Mort podcast, you mentioned that one the one film studio that wanted to make Mort into a oh, film but with less death he talked about that but apparently they had even worse luck later when they tried to make Mort again Yeah. and they were approached by Disney and oh they came very close to making it and death wasn't a problem they actually wanted death and they wanted okay. but they wanted to have the option on all of the other Discworld novels and all of the other death books mm-hmm. which would have meant that they were tied up with Disney forever yeah. and so Terry Bradshaw and Colin Smith Smythe I've double barreled his name and changed it for him okay. Colin Smith Smythe was working on some it's language like a Christie character 
he was working on some language for the contract anyway that they couldn't have certain words so they couldn't incorporate Ankh-Morpork yeah. in particular they couldn't incorporate some of the domains and just just some of the words they couldn't that, have that whole area I think is fascinating because you see it a lot now with the I don't want to get too off topic here but with mm. the intellectual property wars with all of Marvel comic stuff that you know yeah. some of it's owned by Disney and some of it's owned by who's either like Universal or Fox or and yeah, I always, I, I always wonder like reason. you know what how specifically worded are those contracts you know like when um like Kingpin to me always would have been a, a Spider-Man villain because he's the villain in the cartoon that I watched when I was growing up yeah but he um in the comics he's also a Daredevil villain and when he made that awful Daredevil film with um Matt Damon and Colin Farrell he shows up in that and then they sort of they had the rights to him and I was like was but they could have you know a Spider-Man film presumably could have used him as well and was that just a case of whoever used him first got him um, but then you have the other thing with uh, Quicksilver um, and Scarlet Witch showing up in both the Avengers and uh, X-Men um, yes, Days of Future Past but the, yeah. the Avengers can't use the word mutant yeah yeah it's, it's so weird and so ultra specific like trying to imagine this like this alternate history where Disney gets the rights to death to death <laughs> books but not a lot of other Discord books that are then produced by another company and they, they you know and then Death shows up in all the books anyway, so would they not be able to have, have him show up in those? Um, yeah, they'd have to have crossover contracts. Yeah, yeah. Um, God, who knows, who knows. But I think I'm probably, by the sounds of it, I'm glad that Disney didn't get their hands on it. No. Because Colin Smith-Smythe and Terry Pratchett were both very glad that that deal fell through based on the language then. Yeah. Well, this is Colin Smith-Smythe's anecdote. Yeah, well, I trust Colin Smith-Smythe. <laughs> I just hope I'm telling it right. I... I trust him with my life. That's fair. I would too. He's a very smart man. <laughs> and with that, we will jump in to Weird Sisters. Um, first of all, to provide a refresher for the plot for anyone who hasn't read it for a while or hasn't read it at all. Um, so, The King is Dead, Long Live the King is the basic premise of Weird Sisters. The book starts with the old king dead at the foot of stairs, dagger in his chest, natural causes for a king. The Duke Felmet and his... his uh, duchess take the throne and neither of them are quite right the duke is perpetually watching washing his hands and asserting all the places that he definitely wasn't and all the people who definitely didn't see him those places particularly being on the top of the stairs the night the old king was killed and the duchess makes lady Macbeth look downright approachable luckily the old king had a child who escaped with the crown by way of a particularly loyal servant the servant was quickly ended by a few of the duke's men but they had the bad luck to stumble on three witches eating scones over a cauldron on a cold night. The witches take the baby and the crown and try to come up with a way of keeping both of them safe. The safest thing appears to be handing them over to a caring theatrical troupe who will be strolling all over the land. Speaking of the land, the duke has been cutting down trees and burning down houses and the land has started to dislike him. The land is starting to wake up with a grudge. Granny Weatherwax, Nanny Og and McGrath Garlic, the three witches, are persuaded to get involved, particularly after the Duke tries to torture Nanny Og quite unsuccessfully, emphatically unsuccessfully, and to turn the people against all three. Granny Weatherwax has the bright idea to move the entire kingdom of Lankra a bit into the future so that the baby they rescued can come back and be restored to the throne as an adult. She does this with some help from the other two, and an 18-year-old Tom John, that's the baby, is suddenly performing an Ankh-Morpork. Uh, the King's Fool goes off to track down a troop in Ankh-Morpork who can write and perform a play to correct history, casting the old king as a villain and the duke as a hero. Um, they fetch Tom John and his troop, who then return to Lonker to put on the play. 
but it gets quite out of control when being performed in front of the people of Lancre, and a troop comes out with some help from the witches. The duke later dies, the duchess run, runs away, probably dies as well. The witches are restored, uh, the witches have their respect restored, and Tom John is restored to kingdom. Except he doesn't want it. One final correction from the witches, and it's all well, all's well that ends well. The fool, as it turns out, has a considerable likeness to the old king, is wiser than the duke, and could probably be the king's son. Probably. The book ends with him appointed to the throne and courting McGrath and the coven of two. Right, so that's Weird Sisters um, in a nutshell. You, uh, what, were your, what were your impressions, first impressions on revisiting this one? This is the first one that I watched instead of read. So okay. I've read Weird Sisters when I was younger. And for some reason it's actually one of the ones that stuck out the clearest to me. I I remembered the ending and the whole time I was waiting for it to get there going I remember this part I remember yeah. this part ah this is where that guy shows up whereas some of the previous ones like I mentioned have kind of blurred together some of the details because of the way that I read them so quickly this one was particularly um, memorable to me and it's probably because it's the first one with really establishing the witches mm-hmm. really establishing Granny Weatherwax and it's also probably because I really liked The Fool um, I liked the way he was written I liked how smart he is. Just this ridiculousness of this man who yeah. makes himself small and slumps everywhere and capers everywhere wearing jingling bells. Oh, Clark Kent. <laughs> exactly. Well, without the jingling bells. But... Yeah, and I think maybe smarter. Yeah. I, think... I don't know. Clark Kent won Pulitzer Prize. Did he? You know, just give those away, you know. Oh, I haven't seen mm. that one or read that one. Uh, well, I don't know. I think this guy could have won a Pulitzer Prize if they existed. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> and if you have know, a pen the, paper. The Ward Prize or something for oh, journalism yes. in the Discworld. Yeah, that would be it. Um, yeah, did you, did you like his Liverpudlian accent in the uh, <laughs> animated adaptation? I did. They do they do accents uh, very well in the two of those. I love um, Glaude, the dwarf and soul music, has the Liverpudlian accent as well. Oh, yeah. And um, Buddy has... Uh, uh, an amazing Welsh accent. I swoon <laughs> hearing him. <laughs> but they, uh, they did Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og very well. Yeah. My God, Margaret's voice in the animated. Oh, it grates on you hmm. like like chalk. But then I I skimmed through the book again, and about halfway through the book, they do establish that her voice wasn't exactly pleasant. Yeah, so. I I was I um it's been a while since I watched it in full, but it was kind of yeah, sort of I I reread the book and then skimmed through the animated uh, adaptation, <laughs> and I did think like her voice is sort of really flat and nasal. And my first impression was like, oh yeah, that's absolutely what McGrath sounds like. But after a while, it starts to grate. But it's an odd one. I still didn't lose the impression. I'm like, well, it probably feels right for how she sounds, but. Mm. Um, I don't know. I don't want to kind of criticize the actress too much, but maybe she kind of like um, it was a particular effort to take on the voice, and then she couldn't have a lot of. She wasn't able to vary her cadence or her range loads while she was doing that voice that made it seem more monotonous. Maybe. But um, on the subject of McGrath and the fool, uh, just one I was going to ask later, but you're all around it now. Um, I think their their romance, not only over the course of this book, but over the course of like. Lords and Ladies and Witch Abroad um, and Cabbage Gallum might be the best love story in the Disc world. <laughs> Do you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I think, yeah, uh, um, that that part. Uh, it's way down now, but in Lords and Ladies, when she sees that he sleeps at the door to his kingdom, the way he used to sleep at his master's door when he was a fool, yeah, and gets really emotional, like always has me, you know, like to the point of choking up whenever I read it. <laughs> um, 
And I, I just think it has a, like it has a, a nice sort of um like he, he I know he just gets the tone really well like we've probably talked we've talked a lot before and probably no doubt will again about how well Pratchett balances humour and the more serious elements he wants to address. And I think he does it really well in their relationship between kind of like poking fun at how like unappealing the two of them would be to uh, anyone else. Mm-hmm. And uh, like there's that wonderful um, line that like 90% of true love is acute, boring embarrassment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which it certainly is with them. Yeah. Like I think he, he strikes a balance really well between doing that, but also getting across uh, their feelings for each other seeming quite, uh, quite touching and endearing and quite having quite a, a natural evolution as well mm-hmm. um like uh, maybe my opinion will change as we go through uh where sisters and lords and ladies but sort of by by the end of this the two of them you know kind of seem to be like on the road to happily ever after but then they don't get there quite so smoothly or quite so quickly as you would imagine like by where tom weird sisters kicks off they've kind of uh are on a break so to speak you know um uh, and then the way they reconcile after that with him just kind of taking it out of her hands and her getting really angry and then kind of taking matters into her own hands and gaining some agency through it. Um, yeah, I think they're like the whole romantic arc just helps the two of them grow so much as characters and just, uh, yeah, strikes a really nice balance between like, like you know, giggling at these two kind of uh, unappealing but utterly enamoured, criminally shy and earnest people and also being like really touched by the love two people can feel for each other, even if they are fictional characters. That's true. And you know what? I didn't really remember that about um, the later books. So it'll probably stick with me a lot more once we get to them and reread them. Mm-hmm. For me, my favourite romance was always Captain Carrot and Angua. Yeah, let's start a contender. Probably something we'll tackle in the doing a list somewhere down the line. It's like, oh, yes. Uh, Best of this world romance. Yeah. Oh, those two. And. Um, Sam Vimes and Sybil. Yeah, yeah. Those that's, three, that's really we're going to have to yeah. arm wrestle for them or something. That's going to be tough. <laughs> yeah. I'm not really sure where I'd land them all at the minute, actually. Do you think uh, Duke and Duchess Falmouth would get in it? Oh, definitely. Oh, uh, they're... A lovely couple. Actually, do you know what? They're number one. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> my sweet, my precious. <laughs> it was actually so odd to hear that language coming from the Duke. Probably because of all of the... Um, I don't know. Maybe because you get introduced to him as a murderer to begin with mm-hmm. and then his wife is nattering away about how he should have done this and should have done that and he's all oh yes my sweet yes my dear yeah and the language seems kind of odd it seems um i'm not really sure what stood out about it it's not even that it seemed overly affectionate like the words are seem very affectionate but it's it's i think it's because it sounds like yes dear yes dear yeah well he sort of is isn't it? it's kind of implied he's ignoring her for a, a lot of time and there's a, there's a great line to book about um I think she she tells him oh, I can't remember what it is exactly but like oh you should have sent the guards to do this and he's like oh I already did and you know, it notes that she's kind of momentarily taken aback and really disappointed by this missed opportunity to chastise him <laughs> because he's done something right but yeah. she rallies magnificently and finds fault with him for something else <laughs> um, like I, I like their kind of uh, weird almost like gender swapped um, take on the relationship between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth and we all probably touch a lot more on the Shakespearean illusions throughout Mm -hmm. but I mean obviously they're essentially like he you know he is Macbeth and that he's the one who takes the throne and kills the previous king Mm -hmm. but also he it's Lady Macbeth in the play who is gets the guilt that uh, manifests itself in her obsessively washing her hands and sleepwalking and uh, the Duchess's kind of uh, 
um, part towards the end where she shrugs off Granny Weatherwax's um, headology, which makes her see what a terrible person she really is and just like kind of embraces how evil she is, is very similar to Macbeth's speech where he, you know, contemplates all the bad things he's done, but he kind of realizes, well, that's, I, I'm in blood so far steep that to go back where is tedious is to go over yeah. or uh, some, like, something to that effect. So it's kind of mm-hmm. like, well, you know, yeah, there's no getting out of this now. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's interesting that, like, I mean, the, the book is obviously um complete riff on Macbeth with some other allusions to Richard the Tours and the way the old king is kind of hinted at being portrayed in Hugh's play mm-hmm. and uh, Hamlet with the ghost. And uh, I, I do, it took me a while to get it, but then when, when I did, I like, I really liked that when they keep insisting to Hugh that the ghost feels like it should be in a different play. And he, <laughs> he's like, no, no, it's the ghost is good. And of course, like he's writing Macbeth, but trying to fit the ghost from <laughs> Hamlet into it. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I, 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 I think the, the Felmets are a good example of how sort of, Pratchett uses um, riffs on Shakespeare really well that it doesn't just become how would you put it it doesn't just become him doing a cover version of Macbeth you know like it's it's very much a different take on it a, a re, reinterpretation um, like he's, he's uh, kind of using Macbeth to augment his story rather than just like leaning on it uh, for an excuse for a story yeah and Terry Pratchett's version of The Three Witches is just so much better than Shakespeare's. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> Not that I want to compare Pratchett and Shakespeare or anything. I, I do love the part um, when they're they're sitting through, they're seeing the, the kind of Macbeth-esque play. <laughs> and uh, I, I love Nanny and Granny getting really indignant about... Um, That's meant to be us. Uh, yeah, but, uh, but about listing the things they're doing as well. Because like in... You know, in Macbeth itself, it's so melodramatic. Like, you know, the, the, the efforts to kind of... Uh, get across that oh these witches are bad alright so it's like oh so what did you do the other day oh I drowned a baby oh I you know well that's nothing I shipwrecked an entire ship you know and just casually discussing this and I love to sort of getting indignant about like how how ridiculous that is you know yeah. that isn't even like a realistic crime to accuse them of um, I, I also I like burst out laughing reading it on the bus and got a lot of funny looks when McGrath says something like oh they um, I'll try and find it now. It's she gets offended by the way um, by the way they're being portrayed and um, up, 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 up. Uh, I can't find it here. I should have marked it out. But it's some effect where she's like, "No, we we don't do anything like that. We're good and kind and wouldn't hurt people. We should turn their bones into hot lead." There's even a break in the paragraph, and it's just like. <laughs> I love that. I've forgotten about The other two have been kind of impressed with her, and uh, but like also, um, you know, <laughs> thinking that this this might be entirely practical uh, mm-hmm. given the situation. On a similar note, um, mm-hmm. one of my favorite moments was Granny Weatherwax watching the play. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the first play, how she doesn't want to admit that she doesn't know what the theatre is. She's like, oh, yes, yes, let's go to the, oh, the theatre, yeah, yes. Yeah. It's been a, been a long time since I saw the theatre played right. And she just doesn't have a clue what she's talking about. <laughs> then she goes there and they keep pointing at all the flaws. He's just a man in a straw wig. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, they're trying to figure out who killed the old guy. Oh, he did it. We all saw him. <laughs> <laughs> she's just heckling. <laughs> having no idea that it's an act. 
My favorite thing about this whole book, I think. Yeah, yeah. And particularly in the animated series, they do very well there as well. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Magrat getting so embarrassed. <laughs> and um, again, it goes back to that. Uh, I think we mentioned when we covered equal rights, but that Pratchett can make Granny this really admirable, um, uh, impressive character, but also show up these flaws, like in that she's kind of you know she's intelligent, but she's not. I suppose book smart or literate, yeah, or or worldly in these ways. Um, so we can kind of like take the piss out of her there, but also without completely undermining her or without feeling the need to, you know, fix these flaws. Yeah. Um, that I I, I think it just shows a really nuanced view of what compromises intelligence and useful skills, and um, kind of uh, yeah, I suppose what what compromises like strength, you know strength of character rather than just have in one pres- prescribed version of oh, this is how a hero should be or this is how like you know a good all good people should aspire to these set of attributes to get mm-hmm. um like literacy and you know w- whatever else like that he can kind of write these uh heroes with very diverse skill sets and viewpoints that's true and one of the best characteristics of granny weatherwax is that one line where it's like but she would never admit ignorance on anything yeah. Which is why she pretends she hasn't some clue what the theatre is and why she has that great line about thespians. <laughs> Where uh, Margaret says, oh, they're thespians. And then Yann goes, oh, are they? I never knew. <laughs> and Granny Weatherwax goes, stop showing off. Sorry, Grace. She doesn't even know where thespian <laughs> is. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> she, she doesn't know things, but it doesn't matter <laughs> because she believes that she knows things. Yeah. And you're almost inclined to go along with her interpretation instead of the actual one. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually better yeah Do I don't know where Thespia is either good on good on you Granny Weatherwax <laughs> there's a line in um, in Truckers the, the first one in the Bromeliad trilogy that Pratchett wrote where a uh, guy says the important thing about being a leader isn't about being right or wrong it's being certain and uh, yeah. I think Granny very much characterises that <laughs> yeah that's exactly it my favourite thing about her in person in particular yeah um, just going back to the to the Duke um I like I have uh, I've kind of a lot of uh, a lot of different feelings on him. I really like the horrifying deterioration of his hands that we never actually see um, on screen, as it were. Yeah, um, him doing anything to them, mm-hmm. uh, and it's never spelled out entirely what he's doing. But there's kind of mentions of using cheese graters and different things, and like at, at the at the play when he's at the play at the end, it, like a alludes to him holding up what once was a hand or the ruins of a hand oh God, um, and you're just kind of left to sort of join the dots together as to what he's doing God. and that's really brilliant and I, I, I like um, I like how he sort of has a weird kind of strength in his insanity mm-hmm. <laughs> like that um, that uh, the um how he can kind of face down Granny at the end, and she mentions about the like tiny flame of sanity burning at the heart of his insanity, and how he almost like sort of bizarrely and briefly faces down death by his refusal to admit that he isn't dead. Yeah, <laughs> oh, you're but, right there. Yeah. But um, there, there, uh, like our things. I, I wear this mat on. Uh, one thing I did notice that will probably become more of a thing going forward. Is that like he's probably the first in a long line of Discord villains who's characterized by being so insane they're actually sane. They've crossed mm-hmm. the border on the other side, which is a cool concept. But I, I don't know. We'll see as we read them in order whether um, 
you know, I feel like it's used a lot and maybe maybe too much. Um, like we, we spoke last time about within one book, how that great line about Coin is feeling like he's staring at the, a point to the back of your skull mm-hmm. is great the first time or two. And then he, you know, he used it a little too much. And I feel that that concept and the particular way of describing that concept for a villain is probably a little overused. Mm-hmm. But, um, but you know, that's, that's something we'll see going on. Uh, but also with the Duke, I think his kind of his his fluctuating madness is um, sort of feels, uh, I suppose, a little less well structured than it could have been. You know that, like at certain points, you know, like after he's killed, as opposed to um, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth in the, in the play, who kind of slowly descend, well, into madness in Lady Macbeth's case, and into you know, sort of. I don't know, like almost like utter nihilism in Macbeth's case by the end of it. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't really descend. He It's like in peaks and troughs, you know, like at certain points he'll be, like throughout he's destroying his hands and at certain points he'll be seem like a complete cloud cuckoo lander and at others he'll be quite together. Uh, and it, you know, he, it makes him a very uh, like interesting uh, kind of arresting character to read about because you're never quite sure what he's going to do and again whether his whether whatever particular stage of his madness he's in will manifest itself as a strength or a weakness mm-hmm. but it also feels like it's kind of like a, like a plot contrivance or convenience that like he he becomes as insane as the author wants him to be in that particular moment you know as insane or insane rather than kind of slowly descending towards insanity yeah yeah that's true uh but actually going back to the um what I was saying about Pratchett uh, potentially overusing this concept mm-hmm. I, I think that's also uh, probably a strength in his work in that I feel uh, like when he gets to when he gets his hands on a good idea you'll see him revisiting a lot like mm-hmm. he kind of knows that there's more legs in it and that he hasn't quite got it out maybe the way he he wants to entirely like you know there's certain um, cause for complaint like how like every death book seems to be about death take a holiday and the chaos that ensues <laughs> but he always does something different with it and you really get the feeling like you know he had this idea in his head like like that there's some perfect way he wants to you know use this this plot conceit or this concept mm-hmm. and if he writes or like a really good or like even terrific book using it but still isn't quite happy he'll still revisit it and try and put a different spin on it mm-hmm. um and I always feel like when he's writing Huel and he has to... I'm, I'm not sure if that's all right. Would you say Huel or Whale or... Well, the... when I was doing a little bit of research, I saw him compared directly to Whale as another Shakespearean illusion. Oh, okay. So I've been so going Whale well, because yeah. of that. Okay, Whale then. Um, but his, his thing of almost being bombarded by inspiration and yeah. like having these ideas that he's not quite sure where to fit them like I put them in one play and think, no, they don't really work there I feel like Pratt, that's Pratchett definitely talking about his creative process at this point you know <laughs> because his output like at this we probably haven't mentioned it but he's it's fucking phenomenal at this stage <laughs> I, I look, look at it see if they uh, no they don't list the years on the inside of my copy here but he's pumping out two Discworld books a year by this time I think like between 88 and 92 he it's near 30 books he comes out with. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, like, it's a, he's just a, like a radar dish for <laughs> ideas yeah. from the multiverse, like, descending on his head. 
And I can imagine it would get kind of baffling and frustrating as I'm like, oh, you know, it feels like I know this is a good one, but it doesn't fit into this book, but I'm not sure what book it fits into. Mm. Yeah, so, you know, while I kind of flagged up that, that him reusing concepts might be a cause for complaint, it's also probably a big strength of his writing too. Like, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't like to miss out on whatever, like all the debt books past Mort because we've done the debt goes on a holiday thing, you know? Yeah, that's true. Mm. And the... Uh slowly going insane sane man yeah it's yeah. definitely a great character that he writes yeah like uh, guys like Vorbis and Tiatima um, any of the Cable yeah. Street particulars yeah that one in particular that I've forgotten his name Swing I think so yeah like the worst of the, the lot the guy with the calibers oh yeah, yeah that's him <laughs> I visibly shuddered there I realised that's missed in a podcast <laughs> Um, actually, while we're just quickly uh, on the on the Duke and Duchess, I thought as well as bearing uh, similarities to both Macbeths, the Duchess also has some similarities with the. Uh, I'm probably getting the rank wrong, but the the Countess or the Baroness of of Gormenghast, Titus Crone's mother in Gormenghast, for anyone who's is read uh, Mervyn Peake's Gormenghast trilogy, where like there's another, I think he's he's meant he's referenced Gormenghast once before. He does it again in this book about like describes Lonker Castle as someone who saw Gormenghast but didn't have the budget. <laughs> um, but uh, which again is one of those sort of fort wall breaking uh, references that like kind of take out of it a little. But I think it's the only one in in this in in, in this book. Mm. But it did get me thinking like she's um she's like physically huge. In the same way that uh, is it the Countess? I can't remember what her, her title is. I feel like she's not named in, in Gormenghast, but I'll, I'm going to call her the Countess. Anyway. They're both described as these physically huge kind of mountains of women who kind of radiate authority and have a mad, nervous, jittery husband. Oh wow! Um, so she like the Duchess almost does like a, an evil version of the uh, the Countess of Gormenghast, and I suppose the the fool is almost like a good version of Steerpike. So you you haven't read Gormenghast? No. no. Well, I suppose, I, might I, now. I yeah. I hope I hope any of our listeners that have are kind of um that I'm not just so like talking out of my arse here that they're they're getting some some of these similarities as well. At the very least, they're getting a good book recommendation out of it. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely, check it down. Um, I like to with the depiction and just get it like with the depiction of the of kingship and the, the duke as a king the land is rejecting how it, like it plays on that trope of like the fisher king and the, the king being linked to the land in a really integral way which is a really like a really you know interesting um trope to use but i suppose ideologically it runs the risk of you kind of implicitly naturalizing royal authority in a way that we know pratchett never does certainly given the way the way Vimes will speak about it in later books. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like giving the king that relationship to the land where saying, oh yeah, the kings are divinely appointed because look, here's the land literally reacting to them. But he then undercuts that by having the uh, kingship switcheroo at the end where the fool gets the crown. <laughs> even though, I'm still not entirely sure. What is it? Is, it? is the fool, like, is he related? Is it that like Tom John is the son of the queen and the fool's dad, and the fool just isn't related. He's Tom John's half brother, but he isn't related to the king at all. Yeah, and yeah, and he becomes the king, so he isn't like up the royal line. <laughs> so again, that's like you know, 
uh, Varence the Second, yeah, isn't related to Varence the First at all, <laughs> yeah, or his wife, but becomes a king and becomes quite a good king. So that's sort of undercutting that classical, um, I suppose, naturalized view of royal authority. Mm. Uh, so I, I really enjoyed that. That's true. I guess um, he doesn't really promote naturalization of royalty or anything because of the way at the end the witches are like, well. You know, destiny, it's not really all it's cracked up to be. Yeah. I mean, there's destiny, and then there's do what you want. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm paraphrasing there because I can't remember the last speech. But the part where Margaret is trying to say, but what about his destiny? And they're like, no, 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 don't tell him. Don't, they're brothers, that's enough. <laughs> never, never mind destiny. And it feels like throughout the rest of the book, throughout the start of the book, everything is building up to one particular point, mm-hmm. which does seem like destiny. And given that we're doing the Macbeth comparisons... The naturalization of the the land supporting the king is a very good reference to in Macbeth the way the weather goes against yeah. the king, all of the um, sympathetic magic going on. This is sort of like very similar to that, but instead of the weather, it's literally the ground and the animals, which is just topsy turvy, literally topsy turvy sympathetic magic. And I love how they take their revenge on the Duchess at the end. So. Oh yeah, like I think yeah. Uh... Both the uh, both the the Duke and the Duchess have very good. It was like villain endings or villain deaths. Yeah. yeah, and I did feel quite a bit of relief for the uh, for the old king. Yeah, when he disappeared, because first he'd said, "Well, I better not kill the new king. I better mm-hmm. not kill the Duke because I couldn't put up with him for eternity. While well, I'm a ghost and he's a ghost." Yeah. So then when he turns into a ghost at the end, I was actually going, "Oh no, the poor <laughs> king! He's gonna have to listen to this madman forever." And then his destiny was sorted and his last business on earth was sorted so he yeah. got to move on thank god yeah he probably uh, goes to the great beyond in the illusion that some son of his is, is on, the, on the throne <laughs> and just don't don't spoil that for him there is some nice foreshadowing of the fool's identity throughout actually there's a there's a line you have to be you have to be born of um a born fool to be a king Oh, yes. uh, and there's a part where he refers to the Duke as like he's using his kind of fool speak and he calls him Nuncle and the fool says I'm not your or the Duke says I'm not your Nuncle and now obviously he isn't but kind of officially because the, the, like the official line by the end of it is that the fool is the, the king's son mm-hmm. um, so he the Duke sort of would be an uncle to him or some kind of second cousin <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I'm never entirely sure how the, uh, things work like that um mm-hmm. But... Sorry, I was searching for another. Um... Oh yeah, yeah. There's there's one kind of cryptic one where the when the 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 old king as a ghost is sort of at his wit's end in the castle and trying to find someone who will recognize him. He hits on his plan of trapping Grebo in the hope of attracting a witch. Mm-hmm. He says. Um, only close relatives and the psychically inclined, Death had said. There weren't many of either in the castle. And, you know, he goes on to say, well, he doesn't talk to the Duke. It says, as for the rest, only the cook and the fool seem to qualify. And I'm like, I, is, is that a reference to, like, that he thinks they'd be psychically inclined? Or that, you know, <laughs> they're both related to him? And even in the cook's case, it's kind of never addressed again. I mean, they do allude to um, Varenz the first drop the... Uh, Droit the Signor, Droit the... Uh, yeah. uh, him being very free with that. So maybe it's a kind of like reference towards like, oh, like half the people in the castle are actually his illegitimate kids because he was just like sleeping around and even he knows it, but... Well, maybe. 
Yeah, I guess that's the only thing that makes sense, unless the cook really is a psychic. Mm-hmm. But he only has about three lines of dialogue in the whole book, so there's no way to pick up on that. Yeah, yeah. Oh. I hadn't noticed that. Yeah, that was, that was one that uh, left me puzzled, all right. Um, oh, well, I remember we do get a nice shout-out to the... Uh, the uh, a reference to the the forest of scund with the talking trees that Rincewind ends up in. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I love how much the Duke hates trees. Yeah. <laughs> Given again all of the Macbeth stuff, you know, yeah, the, the forest the... comes to Dunson End. I hate trees, and they never explain why. I just hate them. There's so many of them. Yes, and over scund way, the trees talk to you and walk around of a night. Said Nanny without even asking permission. Very poor organization. <laughs> um. Which is like a nice kind of shadow because like a lot of, uh, I suppose, it, while in the first Life and Asking Colour Magic there are a lot of seeds planted for like, you know, that will mature into the Discworld uh, we get more familiar with. There's a lot of stuff that's never touched on again and I'd assume kind of scunned was one of them. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's there. And it also brings it nicely full circle because obviously most kinds of talking trees in modern fantasy literature are probably inspired by the Ents in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. And Tolkien's idea for the Ents apparently came when he first went to see Macbeth. And the prophecy was when, yeah, you won't be king when um, Dunsinane Wood, or when the uh, Burnham Wood moves to Dunsinane Hill. Mm-hmm. And he got really excited because he thought, oh, wow, we're going to see moving living trees. <laughs> like The trees are going to come alive to fight Macbeth. <laughs> And then, of course, it's just um, it's, it's Macduff and his army using the, the branches as, as cover yeah. and camouflage. So he's disappointed and thought, well, I didn't get my walking, talking trees, so I'm going to have to write some of my own. And write some he did. On another note, how much would you pay to see that version of Macbeth? Macbeth <laughs> versus the trees. A literal fight to the death with Macbeth versus a forest. Well, I haven't seen the um, Michael Fassbender... Uh, Marion Cotier version now. Me neither. There might be there might be McBad <laughs> fighting trees and that. I'll certainly be disappointed so. now if there isn't. Yeah, me too. My expectations are high now. Yeah. Um just well, I suppose with regard to the uh I like I love I, I love his the way he explores the powers of plays and fictions in general. Like Granny, kind of horrifyingly mediating on how the play is going to change people's perception of witches, regardless mm-hmm. of what the truth actually is. And uh, there's a death has um, great. Oh yeah. Death says, um, inside this little world, they're taking pains to put all the things you might think they would want to escape from. Hatred, fear, tyranny, and so forth. Death was intrigued. They thought they wanted to be taken out of themselves. And every art humans dreamt up took them further in. Uh, yeah, and, and there's like just a lot of really great ruminations on the, kind of the, the power of not only of plays and theatre, but I suppose of fiction in general, and the, the power and the appeal of them. Mm-hmm. Um... But with regard to the Duke sort of turning Lankra against the witches, I felt like that could have been fleshed out a little more. Um, like that we we don't see a lot of the, uh, I suppose, of the witches' interaction with, with normal people, like with, you know, the, just the, the Lankra commoners in this one, mm-hmm. other than kind of, you know, uh, like they interact with the guards 
and they go to the theater but they don't really you know talk to talk to the people there yeah. but we, we get that moment when the cart doesn't uh get out of granny weatherwax's way and it's kind of just sign that they're losing their respect for witches mm-hmm. but i i suppose i i would have I feel there would have been more to it. It could have been with some fleshing out with you know more tangible moments of just like you know them going about their witchly duties, like going midwifing or attending to the sick and being shown some disrespect that they weren't shown before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just like uh, like I, I I like that concept of kind of Felmat's Felmat's propaganda war against the witches, but it, it felt like it was. Uh, not not as fully developed as it could have been. Like you know, it's more kind of uh, it left to the reader's imagination to, you know, uh, sub in all this respect the witches are losing. Yeah, um, you're right. I mean, part of it is also the perception of witches is apparently partially, according to I think I think it's the fool that explains this in the first place. The perception of the witches is partially, oh yeah, we're real proud. We got our own witches. Yeah, and, yeah. Oh yeah, we're terrified of them witches we have. Yeah. <laughs> So it might just be that they kind of take the fear away. I'm not sure how you'd show that. You certainly couldn't invite them midwifing anymore. <laughs> I I do like that um that uh, the film that sort of create their own enemy in the witches. Like they just hear, oh, there are these witches and they have authority. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're ruling this country. We should have all the authority. Oh, they don't pay taxes. Mm-hmm. And there's like kind of... Um, uh, I'm a firm believer that everyone should pay taxes. By the way, are you listening, Bono? <laughs> um, but but there's they don't stop the question. Well, they don't do any of this, and the kingdom was still working okay as it was. You mm-hmm. know, they suddenly decide like, no, these are 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 a threat to us uh, because they have this authority, even though they're not using it against us in any way. And then the witches only really begin to use it against them because the the duke and duchess make the first move and they imprison any og and they you know, start to try and undermine the respect the witches have. Uh, like, the, presumably, if the land had rejected Felmet in the same way, mm. the witches would have made a move, you know, made a move against them eventually, but it probably, I know, mightn't have been with the same purposefulness and level of vehemence and uh, speed that they did if he hadn't kind of actively made an enemy of them himself. That's true. That's actually very Shakespearean. Yeah, yeah, well, absolutely. Bringing on your own destruction. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, just uh, I I feel I feel bad here. Like I'm uh, nitpicking a lot of a lot of elements. Like I really like this overall. But when when Feldman um is described as burning down, you know, people's houses, that's another thing that like felt oddly underdeveloped. Like it's it's there to show that you know he's he's a horrible person and a bad king, and this isn't just like you know the witches have a vendetta against him. He is actually bad for the kingdom. Yeah. Um, and I I do like how it's complicated as well. Where it's mentioned that Varence the first would burn people out, uh, <laughs> but it and, yeah, the witches kind of like <laughs> like just shrug it off, and they do so in a kind of funny way, and in a way that does definitely differentiate him in the sense that you do realize, oh well, he wasn't as bad as Felmet, but it also kind of muddies the waters where it's like, well, he wasn't this you know wonderful ideal king either, you know, um, again, kind of like undermining the idea of. The, uh, I suppose the traditional fairy tale convention of oh, there was a good king and then a bad king got rid of him. We've got to restore a good king. Yeah. Like yeah. No, um, no, no. He's the Robert Baratheon. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> absolutely. He certainly really is. Um, but the so, Duke is Joffrey. Big, drunken, neglectful ruler. Mm-hmm. 
replaced by a guy who he thinks is his son but isn't his son. <laughs> um, there's a wise cracking dwarf as well. There is. Yeah. Certain mm-hmm. uh, to. Not enough witches in George R. R. Martin's novels, actually. No, no, there's not. Um, I don't. Plus, Danny, um, by virtue of having dragons, some kind of like fire witch. Oh, there's the uh, Mag. Uh, what's her name? Mary Mazdor, who Danny burnt. Oh like she, yeah. She's kind of a witch, I suppose, but of all. That's true. Yeah. Although with Zoe, she got vengeance on Danny. She's more of a evil witch. Yeah. I don't yeah. want to go full Black Alice or anything, but she's not great. No. Uh, the old king being off on hunting trips and a drunkard. And, yeah. 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 It's, uh, king Robert. Yeah. Maybe maybe I I've never I've never heard whether George R. R. Martin has read uh, <laughs> has read any Terry Pratchett. I mean I, I I would be very surprised if this was even like influenced someone anyway because we're drawing quite broad parallels <laughs> that are present in a lot of other works too. Oh, yeah. But it just occurs to me now I would be very interested to see whether he's um he he'd read any Pratchett. Mm. Um, but yeah, it sort of feels like I feel like you think like serving the community in a quite intimate way that they do and Lunker being such a small country mm. the witches would have more of a kind of human stake in people being born like people people's houses being burned out by Felmet like as it is they seem to kind of object to it on the principle that he's just you know throwing his weight around and you know doing it for no reason and that he's much harsher than the old king was yeah. but there's sort of no oh he burnt out old Mr. So-and-so who never done anything or like you know I was just talking to this guy and uh, you know his his old mother was like her house is set on fire. They're they're just these kind of faceless uh, characters, you know. Yeah, to the extent where I've just realised that they probably all died. Yeah. Just yeah. now, I've just realised that line about oh yeah, well the old king used to let them out and maybe reimburse them. That means that the duke isn't letting them out. Holy hell! I hadn't realised. Okay, so he's on a murder rampage. Yeah. Oh yeah, he should have been stopped a lot sooner. <laughs> well, the, the this world's kind of uh, like it's it's all size and makeup really like fluctuates around the place, and Lonker is no different. Like I, I, I feel like Lonker gets smaller later on. Like you know, mm. in in equal rights, it's certainly big enough that you have never remember the name of it, but that kind of bustling town esque and granny visit. Well, he sort of he takes a piss. It's not really a bustling town by objective standards, but by the standards of the villages mm. they're familiar with. But it's obviously big enough that Granny doesn't really know that place well well at all. Mm-hmm. And here again, you have the witches are quite, you know, well-known members of the community. And you see sort of that element where, like, you know, Nanny Ogg's, like, family works in the castle. And uh, there's this real sense of, like, you know, the six degrees of separation being about tree in Lankra. Mm-hmm. But it's still obviously big enough that people can be born that they might necessarily, the witches might necessarily know uh, very well. But I think later, by like lords and ladies, it certainly shrunk much smaller. Like, and it's like everyone knows everyone. It's practically a village by that point, you know. Yeah. If not in like actual terms, and certainly in the terms of how the characters uh, relate to one another, you know, and and act. And like, I, it's it's something I I find I find it interesting to note those changes. But I feel like I I feel like a real pedant kind of like hanging Pratchett out to dry for like you know any consistency there because the breakneck pace that he's writing at you know yeah. like the the fact that all the books well there are some like really great character arcs um uh which we kind of alluded to with McGrath and the Phil's relationship over multiple books all largely all the books are you know enclosed within themselves 
they like uh, uh, go at such different concepts. Like he's not writing some overarching plot where he sat down and built the world from the ground up at start. Like he's he's a gardener, not an architect. You know. Yeah. Um, like we we were we were just watching The Simpsons before we went on air, and it, it's we're noting a kind of like fluctuating continuity in that, and it's sort of similar. You know, it's kind of like when when uh, I suppose in in like a long running works like that continuity it's like when it gets in the way of telling a good story <laughs> you junk it yeah. and breaks from continuity only really matter when they detract from the story in some way mm-hmm. that's true and Terry mm-hmm. Pratchett is usually exceptionally good for continuity yeah so I tend to forgive him well actually while we're while we're on this uh, bench of the Simpsons it kind of reminds me that I love that he has he has, Pratchett has a similar skill to sort of golden age Simpsons of combining I suppose like like high and low humour really well and I, I don't want to make kind of make too many strict value judgments on like what high and low humour is mm. but in terms of referencing that you know you'll have like this book that's riffing on Shakespeare that is you know the most kind of uh, respected and like idealised like works of literature maybe ever written but he also like you know he has references to more modern things like Gormenghast he has like cringeworthy puns thrown in <laughs> yeah. um he has a Marx Brothers reference. <laughs> I, I really like that. I had like a mile wide grin on my face reading Quill writing the Marx Brothers sketch. Third clown, like Hong Kong, business with the bladder. <laughs> That's what that was. A little study could go a long way. So you could go a long way right now. Oh, I love that. Um, but yeah, in a similar way to, uh, like I always thought that device kind of like I don't want to go too much on a side trick, but that's like divides the Simpsons from fam- one of the things that divides the Simpsons from Family Guy to me is that like the Simpsons are like a much wider range of things they're riffing off and like they'll be as likely to riff off, you know, like make reference to uh, like politics and philosophy as they will to like, you know, uh, television shows and comic books and with Family Guy, the pool of reference feels much more limited to sort of, you know, pop culture of the last 20 years um mm. and Pratchett kind of has that similar skill where he can both like you know have like in sorcery we have the like punning off Coleridge and uh, uh like the, you know passages in the bible and things but then also oh, yeah. like slipping in references to crunchy bars <laughs> <laughs> that's true um yeah so after after just seeing uh, granny Wedderax on on her own well she's wit-esque in equal rights here we're kind of introduced to Nanny Og and McGrath who like make up the the core trio of the Lunker Witches series going forward mm-hmm. and well I'll tell you what, what's your first impressions of them because obviously it was a long time ago but like how did you regard them I suppose uh, when you're watching the adaptation like seeing them as they would be for the first time in the series you know yeah um I love Nanny Og mainly when she's with Granny Weatherwax because they bounce off each other so well. Margaret, I didn't like so much to begin with mm-hmm. because, as I mentioned, the way she grates is partially because, you know, she wants to use all the candles and all the sigils and all the runes and yeah. the other two are more practical and they're like, stop that nonsense, there's no need for that. We can summon this demon. <laughs> we can summon this demon with, with soap flakes and a, <laughs> and a scrubbing brush. <laughs> we don't need all of your fancy uh, chalk and octograms. But then I actually took quite a liking to her then after the castle where she goes in and she demolishes the, the yeah, door by yeah. bringing the wood to life. And 
the way she fights off the guards. Like the fool helps her out by punching out one of them, and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden she's got a knife to the other guy's throat, and she's oh, gets the dirty Harry line. Yeah, <laughs> it's like oh, only only Vimes is badass enough to use a dirty Harry line <laughs> in the entire rest of the series. So kudos yeah. to her there. Exactly. So I liked her quite a bit after that. I mean, I didn't like her as the oh such romantic flowery young girl. That yeah doesn't get the practicality of magic and that the other witches have to keep on sorry sort of scolding for this and that yeah but then i did like her for actually basically you know being able to kick ass in that particular scene well i feel like she um she kind of develops a lot over the the course of the witches books like in Mm. uh like say in a way that i don't think nanny develops but you just get to see hidden depths to her in uh, like at certain moments in other books that you mightn't have seen before but the kind of like the the feeling is that they were always there but we're only seeing them now you know what i mean so she doesn't kind of uh change usually as a character we just see more of her uh, as as it goes on whereas i feel like uh, like mcgrath kind of like begins sort of like annoying us just you know washed out um out, out of time you know hippy dippy kind of person and like develops more i suppose more confidence and more agency as to you know um as to go on yeah. uh and i think as well like uh we, we alluded to with with equal rights that the the gender um the sorry the depiction of gender and the kind of gender binary is sort of hampered in equal rights by being drawn along by being a binary basically by being kind of one line where you have just like kind of rural uh uneducated you know witch against like the kind of inst- you know patriarchal institution of wizardry um you know located in the city whereas here you get you get like three really uh interesting female leads that can kind of i suppose that can uh demonstrate different different areas of strength and weakness and you know and so on and you know just mm-hmm. feel like you know it's kind of like a like a token female hero sort of thing you know like, like a like a well-intentioned um you know attempt at a, a feminist thing where they just like you write a conventional hero but happens to be a woman mm-hmm. like uh here we get kind of much more nuanced um female characters that can like and they can explore i suppose lots of different like strengths and attitudes to, to witchcraft as well yeah my favorite thing about nanny og actually is that i don't know how well granny weatherworks could get along without her yeah and you don't see that a lot i mean they're they're kind of bigger here and there and granny weatherwax has to give out to her for going off quaffing beers and taverns mm-hmm. and everything but there's one moment in this and one moment in i think it's lords and ladies where she just completely rescues granny weatherwax but never wants her to know. She never yeah. wants to draw attention to it. So um, in this one, it's when she gets all of her sons to round up all of the, all 32 of the cockerels that would crow in the morning. Because yeah. the spell has to be completed before the last cock crows. So she's calculated how many cockerels there are, sent all of the boys out. And so you could just hear these scrangled squawks in the distance. <laughs> and Granny Weatherworks keeps going, what's that? Did I hear something? No, no, no. Didn't hear anything there. No. No. And then in Lords and Ladies, it's uh, I think the staring at the sun competition and Nanny oh, Og just sort of yeah. nudges one of the kids in so Granny Weatherwax has to rescue the kid mm-hmm. and you, Granny Weatherwax I don't think ever realises what Nanny Og is doing or certainly doesn't know how to respond to it so she mm-hmm. doesn't really acknowledge it 
But you have to wonder when, when Granny Weatherworks gets herself into these situations by taking on these massive, massive tasks. You know, what would have happened if Nanny Og hadn't been there to intervene with the little things that she does, the, the, the human touches? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think Pratchett said that uh, he thinks that Nanny is secretly the most powerful of the witches, but just isn't that bothered about it. <laughs> uh, That's possible, actually. Yeah. You don't see her do a lot of magic, though. Yeah, you don't, but uh, yeah, I suppose that's his definition of power might be down to more kind of like headology and, uh, you know, I suppose like practicality. That's true. Nanyog does have a surprising amount of it. Yeah. You yeah. almost miss it. I, I love the scene with her in um, in the, the uh, torture, the uh, torture chamber. Yeah. It's like asking, can she have a go? And, uh, <laughs> and the, the Iron Maiden. The Iron Maiden, <laughs> yeah. Um. I also think like it makes for a kind of nice, uh, nice contrast. I suppose that like uh, Pratchett, you know, riffs, riffs and parodies a lot of traditional uh, fantasy or adventure situations, such as being caught in a dungeon. Whereas like pre- previously he had done it with um, Rincewind, where like you know the, the joke will be kind of how ridiculously scared he is, and like I, I think in um, in Sorcery you have that joke about how sort of pathetic the dungeon. He is. He's in. Like it has one snake. Who isn't? It's a snake bit. One snake. And, and the snake wants to escape. You know, but he, yeah, but he's mm-hmm. still kind of. He's still kind of scared. Whereas, mm-hmm. like here, you have a sort of. You know, he can um, poke fun at a similar can a similar situation, but do it in a different way with this, like you know, distinct character. Yeah, that's true. Naming all of the individual torture tools. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> And the, the Duke, Duke game wants, of I Spy. Yeah, and the Duke wants to introduce her to all of the. Oh, let me show what everything does. Oh, I already know all of them. Well, all the ones beginning with W, S, I, and P. Because of her game with I Spy. Yeah, I love Nanny Og. Um, what we, what we, uh, you mentioned uh, the cockerels. What did you think of the, the time skip uh, conceit? Oh my god. Uh, it was ambitious. Yeah. I thought it was great. It's probably the only way they could have done this. And remember, I watched the animated. Yeah. And I hadn't read it in quite a long time, so I wasn't even clear on this. And as I watched it, I kept on thinking, he's still a baby. How does this even resolve itself? I can't remember anymore. And he's walking around picking up apples and not saying words. Mm -hmm. Like, how in the world does this situation actually resolve itself? And there's no other way, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, It it, it kind of leaves... I think, like... For me, it sort of works. It works in the confines of this book that it's like essentially Lunker's frozen in time for fifteen years. Mm. He grows up, and, and I think I think it more or less kind of like like holds up. The, like I mean, the only thing within the book that doesn't really hold up about it is that there's not more ramifications when everyone else finds out. You know, like yeah. that your man, like in Alderman or a mayor, makes some comment that like, oh, like we just made a, cut a shortcut through time. Um, <laughs> You know, they aren't more sort of perturbed by this, but it, it's more like that, I suppose, going back to the torn issue of continuity, it's like going on that like then technically everyone in Lanka should be 15 years younger than... Um, the rest of the world. Than the, yeah, than the rest of the world. Um, now, there are some things you can like, you can fan wank there. Like I think Brid Cully, when he meets Granny Weatherax and Lords and Ladies, says something like, Oh, you you look like you haven't changed a bit, and it's like, well, if she's technically fifteen years younger than him, even though they should be the same age, maybe that's giving this impression. Oh, that's and, true. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's kind of a lot of like 
really windy loopy theories to explain that but again like it's it's one of the points where you just kind of like you shrug at continuity and i don't know i think maybe some of that stuff is tacitly dealt with in tifa time anyway it's kind of is is meant to be about fixing the whole weird this girl timeline i'll keep an eye out for that when we get there oh and speaking of the this girl timeline um last week when we were talking about sorcery uh we had our first listener question from pencil monkey jensen on twitter Mm -hmm. Who asked us what he thought or what we thought the Lanker witches were doing during the events of sorcery. Yeah. And uh, I kind of speculated on it. And I thought, well, maybe the events of sorcery occur during when Lankra is frozen in time for 15 years. So that's why they don't have any role in it. You know, that's possible as well. Yeah. Granny has gone to Unseen University, dropped Eskoff, come back. There's all this other stuff happens. And that timeline might actually make sense yeah 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 i almost said there's probably someone who's like uh bent over backwards to try and make a cohesive disc world timeline on online somewhere i've got to i would love find to that. see that yeah. but how insane must it look no very much so. <laughs> i'd love to see that yeah. um one thing i i noticed uh quite early in this book is that similar to Equal Rights? It has quite a, a slower pace compared to like the breakneck speed of the the Rincewind novels that all seem to be set over say, the course of maybe like a month at most. Well, yeah. no, actually, Color Magic is kind of implied that they're actually at it for about a year, but uh, there like there's some illusion to them being captured, and uh, you don't know how long they've spent on this ship before they escape. But certainly, Life Fantastic and Sorcery occur over a very short space of time. Yeah. Mort, but like I think over occurs virtually over like. I know maybe a few months um but uh yeah even taking out the, the 15 year time skip in where sisters we do have mentions of years passing anyway like after the duke has become uh has become the king at least and, three yeah yeah and it, it kind of uh you know, i suppose it, it feels like it really suits the the atmosphere the kind of rural uh pastoral atmosphere of Lankra to have this slower pace mm-hmm. and it, it occurred to me to like look out as we go on that whether like certain I suppose sub-series within the disc world naturally have certain paces like the watch series for instance are almost always built around a single case so they usually take place over quite a short amount of time yeah and have this uh really fast-paced um development to them mm-hmm. uh like when, when you see social developments and social tensions within the watch it's like they're usually kind of present and noted at the start and then come to a boil over the um over the course of the novel mm-hmm. like the, the tension between the dwarves and the trolls i feel like like that's noted very early on in men at arms uh and then you see it reach boiling point whereas kind of here and the, with these slower paced ones he can kind of introduce certain social tensions and social developments from the beginning as it were and watch them develop now we i was saying this one i feel like some of them like the uh at the change in attitude uh by the people towards the witches maybe aren't developed as as well as they could be mm-hmm. or as well i suppose as well as i'd like them to be but uh but they're still like he's kind of able to introduce this um this society or this development from the ground up as it were and just like get it to develop over the course of a book um with the with this like slower pace uh yeah it's uh, I, I found that interesting because i was 
then trying to remember in my head whether like Weird Sisters or Lords and Ladies or Carpegigalum or any of the rest of them had like this had a similar more slower pace compared to the watch novels or the Rincewind novels and I suppose we'll see when we get there yeah well, I wonder now as well mm-hmm. I can't remember for some of them I think Masquerade moves relatively quickly I can't remember how long Lords and Ladies takes or which is abroad for that matter it's a good thing we're doing this podcast yeah um, and speaking of things we'll note about the Discworld going forward mm-hmm. uh, and about the, specifically about the watch novels and Angmorpork and Veterinary it's pretty amazing here that virtually um, Veterinary's entire like a, a thumbnail description of his character as we will come to know it is first introduced in a footnote <laughs> of this book when um, Tom John and Quill stop the Thieves Guild and he has a footnote about how the Thieves Guild operates and um, about how the Thieves Guild uh, here we go I, I, it's, a, it's a long one so I won't read it all out but Ank Morpork's enviable system of licensed criminals owes much to the current patrician Lord Veterinary he reasoned that the only way to police a city of a million inhabitants was to recognise the various gangs robber and robber guilds give them professional status invite the leaders to large dinners, allow an acceptable level of street crime, and then make the guild leaders in responsible for enforcing it, on pain of being stripped of their new civic honours, along with large areas of their skin. Um, it all tickled over peace, uh, extremely peacefully and efficiently, demonstrating once again that compared to the patrician of Ankh, Machiavelli could not have run a wealth stall. <laughs> that is an amazing comparison. Yeah. But that's amazing. Like that's You know, he said in... Um, you were sort of irked that he, he he appears in sorcery, but he's kind of trumped quite easily by coin. Yeah, and he's not quite the character we know. Like the the he, it's kind of played fast and loose, where there's those lines about him. You mark it off the calendar when he blinks, and uh, but then like the narrator kind of dismisses those lines and says, "Oh well, he's not really like that." Uh, so you never really get to learn what he actually is like. Mm-hmm. In in sorcery, you you do get that nice line from one of the wizards where he says, um, "I would say he's unfair, but he's unfair to everyone equally." <laughs> um, Which is sounds about right. Yeah, yeah, but here that's like that's sort of the 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 crux of the the veterinary we'll see, particularly in the watchbooks yep. uh, in the future, and it's you know it's it's introduced in a footnote of and it's of about time, yeah, yeah. Uh, and incidentally other than that like side trip to Ankh-Morpork um, when the fool is seeking out the, the players this is the first book so far that's entirely set in one location it's, it's all in Lankra so we really get a sense of I suppose like of atmosphere and a place that we that we haven't got to the same extent in any of the earlier ones that's true too yeah and we'll see a lot of that in like the watch novels also being set in Ankh-Morpork and Mm-hmm. I do love the lines about everything leading to Ankh Pork though like when um, when the witches say oh we'll have to look for Tom John and Granny Weatherwax says no we won't there'll be an Ankh Pork yeah. everybody who has a destiny just goes to Ankh Pork and waits yeah. yeah that's where we'll find him I, I feel like as well that um, again this is me playing continuity kind of fan wank but like Granny not being particularly worldly 
but she has been thank more pork so oh, she would automatically yeah. presume yeah i went to this big busy city one so that's where he must be <laughs> the one i know oh you're so right actually. i mean she's right Yes. And, and kind of like the, the rest of the series will bear out in the all roads lead to Angkor Park hypothesis. Yeah. But like I, I like to think like that's her actual reason for, for that's like the, behind her reasoning in, in that the situation. That makes total sense. I think I believe anything Granny Weatherwax says, despite what I said <laughs> earlier about how she just won't admit ignorance on anything. So we'll yeah. just state an opinion as if it were fact in every situation, regardless of whether she knows it or not. Well, like when she looks up, uh, what is it, Doyen? Yeah. And there's that line afterwards, like, oh, no, no, it wasn't that that he said, it was Doyen. And then in bracket, she looked it up. Yeah, yeah. Because of course she would. She doesn't know something. She'll say she knows it. And then I think she uses it as an insult to Nanny Ogg later. It's brilliant. Yes. Yeah, and I think there's also that line, um, I can't remember if it's somewhere in this one or somewhere in the last one, where it's where she says, uh, or where there's a footnote about how all roads don't lead to Ankhmore Pork. All roads, in fact, lead away from Ankhmore Pork. It's just that all roads have to start somewhere. <laughs> I can't remember which book I saw that in. Uh, it's very good. Mm. Very apt. Yes. Yeah, yeah with the um, the really great interaction and rapport between uh, the three witches and this sort of maybe, um, maybe note, it kind of struck me that it's in marked contrast to how we're criticising sorcery for a kind of uh, like inefficient use of side characters where they just appear and hang around after they've served their purpose. Yep. Whereas here, you know, every character uh, has a purpose and is characterized quite distinctly and interacts with the, when they interact with the other characters, they do so in a way that like feels uh, very natural and very um, enjoyable to read. And I suppose, uh, very purposeful and I don't want to I don't use that like a criticism like it's unsubtle or completely plot driven mm-hmm. but you kind of like in the back of your head you sort of know why people are thinking and acting the way they are whereas we were saying in the last one like Rincewind's weird kind of um, uh, on off infatuation with Conina um, like just uh, among other things being kind of a, a sort of like um, m- like more wishy-washy way of uh, depicting character interaction and you know people not really having strong attitudes to characters not really having strong attitudes towards one another that the reader can kind of get their teeth into which they very much do here yeah uh, yeah and this is I suppose this is our first uh, our first real like you know per- well not permanent but like ongoing ensemble like we had Rinswin and Tuflar but they're really only together for two books mm-hmm. um, I mean two paragraphs back in interesting times but he isn't really with Rincewind for uh, the greater part of that uh, and you you have a like a great ensemble cast in Mort but they're never really together again either um, mm-hmm. whereas here we have you know we have the, the witches as an ensemble cast um, and to a lesser extent with like supporting characters but all these the likes of Rince the second and other you know like Nanny Ogg's extended family that will crop up in the, the future witches books but they work really well together and I feel like, I mean, this is obviously, you know, I can say this because I know there are more witch books and they're all really good, but like I almost feel like if I didn't know that, I'd still feel at the end of this like, oh, I want to read more books about these three characters interacting and there's more room for them to grow and for their kind of attitudes to play off one another in interesting ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, like they don't just feel like three characters thrown together for the sake of a 
the plot of a single book. Yeah. Um, right. So, did you have? I mean, that's that's my kind of a uh, spiel. Uh, I've expunged my spiel. Uh, did you have any more notes on on Weird Sisters? Um, not really. Um, <laughs> I want to talk about the dichotomy of Nanny Og and Granny Weatherwax, and then I realised it was three of them, and then I wrote, "Is trichotomy a word?" <laughs> it is now. <laughs> but I feel like we've already discovered discussed everything else about that, so I just wanted to check if that was a word. Um, what else? No. And then I looked a little bit at the coven and read these references to uh, the witch archetypes of the maiden, the crow, oh, and yeah. the mother. mother. Yeah, which is quite apt here as well, but also quite turned around, mm-hmm. as Pratchett is wont to do. And no, I'm good. Okay, okay, well. That's all my points. Grant, all that remains for us now is just to do the... Uh to do our our little list our supporting trivia list of best worst most somethings or other in the disc world before progressing on mm-hmm. to our major list which will rank this book alongside the uh, five others we've encountered so far okay guys uh since um rose is speaking about games and her experience at this world convention we decided that what we we're going to do this week was come up with our top five favorite ideas for potential Discworld computer games. Mm-hmm. Um, the only limits are our imagination. We're imagining a, a limitless budget, access to any any licenses or intellectual properties we so desire. Uh, so number five would be a first-person shooter set at the end of Reaper Man when the Unseen University faculty are going around blasting shopping trolleys inside a giant parasitic shopping centre. Would essentially be like Call of Duty set in a giant parasitic <laughs> shopping centre with your protagonist being a bunch of old men with makeshift bandanas. And your enemies being <laughs> a walking horde of trolleys. Yeah. Shopping trolleys. I feel like if this would progress to the uh, to the stage where it would be, you know, really popular, like like games like Call of Duty and you have people playing over line with that with those headsets. Yeah. Like rather than um that it would have a built-in feature where, like, the headsets would convert any of the uh, usual, like, trite, homophobic, racist insults 13-year-old kids scream mm-hmm. down at people oceans away from them and those headsets and just convert them into the kind of insults, like, the dean and the chair, the, you know, chair of indefinite studies would use. Uh-huh. Um, so you'd be there, like, playing alongside someone who's playing in a country miles away. You you mess something up and they turn around to you and just start like you know insulting you as the dean would, I like that. I'd love that. So what's our number four? Our number four is a Doomstraw game, with the slight twist being that you play as Rincewind. Your only weapon is a half brick and a sock, Rincewind, true Rincewind style. It is set in the dungeon dimensions, but your only aim is to run away yeah. <laughs> successfully from every monster. Um. Yeah, so do not engage, do not fight. There are monsters after you. You have a half brick and a sock. Run away. That's so, so, yeah, high scores to whoever can like stay alive the longest. Yeah, I like the idea that the luggage would pop along very occasionally and just like vanquish whatever foe you're faced with. Yeah, it'd be like, um, did you ever play uh, Final Fantasy VIII? 
No, no, I haven't. Oh, there's this um. Okay, I don't want to get <clears throat> too much into the uh, semantics of it, but there's this uh, like essentially like like guardian force guy to assist you. You can get called Odin, who will pop up randomly at the start of a battle and just kill whatever enemy you're facing. Oh, nice. So in like efforts to level up, um, myself and like my brother and my cousin friends of mine, we would go to these areas where the monsters would be much higher level than our characters get into battle hope Odin would show up and kill them <laughs> so we get the experience points and if he didn't we just run away we're just getting into these battles and running away unless you just saw the caption reading Zantadzukan at the start genius um, so I imagine there'd be a lot of people attempting the same thing with the luggage mm-hmm. uh, so number three would be a take on Sim City, but you'd be playing as veterinary building and maintaining Ankh-Morpork seeing to the guilds uh watching crazy new stuff arise like and trying to handle it like the the clacks and mm-hmm. the newspaper um handling the various tensions between the trolls and dwarves and the rest yeah trying yeah. to avert war trying to keep the city coffers line trying to keep everything running smoothly yeah <sighs> like brilliant it's an our, our number two our number two oh self-explanatory one of the best ideas <laughs> we've ever had a soul music rock band yeah I feel like I don't need to explain oh, that. <laughs> yeah, it's so good, yeah. Um, you, you you saw the animated adaptation of Weird Sisters at Discord Con. Have mm-hmm. you seen the solo music one yet? No, not yet. Oh, it's great. And uh, the soundtrack is just brilliant. Like, they just have all the songs are pastiches of various different bands or various different styles. Mm-hmm. And the idea of, ba- of banging out their version of, like, She Won't Change Your Mind or Gathering Rhubarb or, uh, <laughs> what's it, Shinibada, the... The, um, which means I think it translates sound like pigeon Welsh as Johnny B. Good ah. <laughs> uh, would be would be pretty amazing. Um, mm. Yeah, that's true. Uh, the hotel room we stayed in actually had it's a, quite fancy. The TV had a radio function and it had playlists lined up, and it had the Blues Brothers soundtrack. That just popped into my head <laughs> because obviously, you know, they're on a mission from God. <laughs> and number one. And this is, like, the idea that this game does not already exist repulses me, <laughs> disgusts me. It would be essentially a Discworld take on Super Smash Brothers. Why isn't it real? <laughs> of all the Discworld characters <laughs> fighting in vastly cartoony fashion mm-hmm. in various, like, arenas, most of which would have holes of some sort <laughs> around the Discworld. It's great. Yep. Yeah, we've uh, we spent so much time off air speculating <laughs> on what the character's special moves would be, who'd crop up as an assist trophy, mm-hmm. what the stages would be. This this is rife with possibility, and I feel like like the, the Smash Brothers format feels almost designed for, for a Discworld game. It does. Um, yeah, so that's our list. And if any of you have any ideas about potential Discworld computer games you'd like to see, by all means, get in touch with us and let us know. Yeah. Um, so there but remains now to rank Weird Sisters on our categorical and objective list of best Discworld books ever mm-hmm. currently standing at five books um, so Rose where are, you, where are you thinking well it doesn't knock Mort off the top spot for me but it is fantastic I think I put it above the light fantastic but they're both fantastic. One's they got fantastic are. in the title. One does have fantastic <laughs> in the title, but I feel like one might be more fantastic in content, right. whereas one is more fantastic in the name, having fantastic in the name. 
But what do you think? You sound like the Queen or something using one, so... Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, well, one feels... <laughs> um... I'm 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 feeling I'm I'm feeling quite similar to be honest. I think it's it's at the very least it's number two right now. Okay. Um, and I thought you'd fight me on the <coughs> fantastic being moved. No, no. I said I, I've got, I've got a lot of sentimental attachment to life fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know I, I think this is definitively better for me. Um, and my gut says it. You know it it, it isn't quite as good as Mort, but I, I'm just trying to like. Uh, poke around in my head now and see why I think that you know and whether that's just I, I, I don't know like what um, whether it's just because I'm just coming off a podcast where and as much as we've said we've liked this we've also poked around at things we felt were a little lacking so th- those are fresh in my head to kind of you know give it the pull below more um, but I don't know I think like uh, I think it's ending is probably better better done uh, Mort's of only for Mort's having like Mort's is, like amazing confrontation between Death and Mort, but yeah. then jumps to that day you say Machina, where it's like it was a few weeks later and all their problems were solved. <laughs> um, but this one is fifteen years later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but all the problems aren't solved; they still have to solve them fifteen yeah, years later. That's true. Like, um, but I, I suppose what actually what gets Mort above it for me is the emotional content. Like I spoke out to Sham by the fool and McGrath's relationship, but um, I start calling Vrentz now. He's the king. He's the king by the end of this book. That's true. Um, but that uh, I was sort of speaking like I think that's quite well well depicted here. But when I I talked about that, I was more speaking like over the course of many of the witches' books, that relationship was really well portrayed. You know, I, I wasn't kind of uh, when I was praising it, I wasn't grading on just this alone. Whereas like Mort, um, so and and that's probably the, you know, the biggest kind of emotional weight I think I suppose this book would carry, mm-hmm. um, is is like their their relationship. There is some, well no actually there's some really nice bits that we didn't even touch on with uh, Tom John and uh, Vitalar, uh, yeah. the the part the part where the um, his wife says about them losing their child and it says like he you know suddenly some so look much smaller. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is very sad <laughs> for what's just like a really kind of simple line and there's that great bit at the end where Tom Jones going on about how frugal they will be going back to on the, bring the troop back to Ank Morpork mm-hmm. and Will says you're your father's son and he says well I thought I'd better be uh, which is just great because it's kind of summing up like it's a nice reference to him being this actor who can be whatever he wants but uh it's also, I suppose, doing a good job of, in the same way we, we said it, sort of destabilised the idea of the monarchy being a natural force. This destabilises the idea of parenthood or far, fatherhood being a natural force. Like, he knows that uh, Vitaler isn't his father, but he's also the man that's raised him and the person that's made him into the person he is. So he's sort of choosing for him to be his father in the face of, uh, you know, of evidence. Like, you know, yeah. I thought I'd better be his son. Like, I'm choosing to be uh, his son because I want to be, which is great. Um, it, it's really good. Uh, and I also feel there's something nice in giving them that little bit that what I suppose, like, the main trust of this plot is about uh, the kingdom of Lonker being upset and how does that kingdom get restored 
and it sort of is restored by for instance second taking the throne so there's no real need to jump back to see like oh how are Will and Tom John getting on on their way back but it does and it gives a nice bookend to uh, to his his arc in the book yeah. but for all that I don't know if it quite matches Mort in the emotional stakes like like Mort's just his uh, journey towards Sky I suppose so it's like growing up um, his uh, his relationship with um, Isabel builds really nicely over, over the course of that yeah over the course of that book and I, I mentioned we do Mort there's just there's a lot of really great uh parts that carry emotional weights that are kind of like scattered throughout the books rather than it building towards a single emotional climax mm-hmm. and there probably wasn't quite as many of those here and yeah i suppose that's that's what's putting more about weird sisters for me at the moment about to nitpick at that how about you do you have like you were you were you seemed a lot sure than i was that uh more was the number one what, like what was what made you think that you know you're right i was and now that you've pointed out the emotional content of, of Tom John and his family, that didn't strike me at all. And you know why? It's because I kept waiting for it to get back to Granny Weatherwax and <laughs> get back to Lanker. So I wasn't even registering the emotion behind some of that stuff. I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And where's the witches again? And what's going on in Lanker? <laughs> um, possibly also because I watched the animated film and they don't actually mention losing the son because yeah, the mother yeah, isn't her. in the animated film. Which actually makes one of the lines seem a bit strange, and it's only when I reread the book that it made sense to me. Um, the Vitaller hasn't quite accepted taking on Tom John when the witches give him the silver dollars in the film. Mm-hmm. But in the book, uh, he discusses it with his wife, and they're both there, and they talk about losing their son, and then they're just sort of thinking, oh, money's going to be tight, but we'll make it work. And that's when Granny Weatherwax hands him the coins, and they say, oh, yeah. why didn't you leave yeah. that? And she says, if I had to buy you, it wouldn't be worth it. Yeah, that's brilliant. It is. And that doesn't translate quite so nicely in the film mm-hmm. because the mother isn't there, so he hasn't quite decided and, mm-hmm. and it still half feels like she's buying him with all these silver coins. So I guess the emotion wasn't there for me maybe because I just wasn't paying enough attention. <laughs> but, uh, you know, these ultimately it is, it's subjective, it's our taking it, so I suppose you can hear, like if you weren't paying enough attention, it's because it wasn't grabbing you as much as it did in Mort and that's, you know, as much good enough reason to rank Mort, Mort above it. That's true. Uh, as as any, um, yeah. Plus, I love the relationship in Mort, Mort and Isabel. Yeah. The, like we talked about the practicality and the, the decisions that are made by the end of it, and death coming to terms with, or trying to come to terms with humanity and trying mm-hmm. to interact with humanity and ultimately failing and mm-hmm. going back to his own domain. Mort and Isabel getting their chance out of real life and Isabel growing out of being a perpetual sixteen-year-old forever and plus. I always love that relationship because you know that later on they're going to produce Susan, who's one of my favourite characters. So I like them in advance of that. (laughs) (laughs) Which is maybe the downside of reading all of these for the second, third and fourth time is that you know what happens later and you're prejudging based on later events. It it can be hard to kind of uh, get yourself in the mindset of like reading the books. Even though the books plot-wise are standalone, you do relate a lot of your feelings about the characters in the books to like how they're depicted and the later books are, you know, how uh, how other characters relate them. Yeah. But, yeah, that's us for this week, guys. Um, hope you've enjoyed it. If any of you want to get in touch with any questions, any comments, 
Um, any suggestions for the, uh, the the minor lists we do, mm-hmm. um, or any suggestions to do with this particular list of hypothetical disco uh, computer games? By mm-hmm. all means, do uh, you can find us looking for Radio Morpork on Twitter and on Facebook, and our blog is radiomorpork.wordpress.com. Um, so thank you and good night. Goodbye. <laughs>